welcome to Mindfulness of Doom, a weekly podcast about life, peaceful living, and existential dread. You're not lost. Everyone's faking it, and the purpose of life is, um, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to episode 12 of the Mindfulness of Doom podcast. We have a very special guest on the podcast today, Ariane Traverso, who is the owner of the Yoga Expo, which takes place down here in South Florida. And she's going to be sharing with us today her business acumen and how she's managed to combine it with her yoga acumen. Very fascinating topic, something that a lot of us here in the mindfulness slash yoga slash ultra spiritualistic ish community struggle with and we're about to get a brand new perspective on how something like that might work but before we get into that we've got a couple of announcements i am leading an eight-week mindfulness class which begins every monday night starting january 22nd is going to be from 7 to 9 p.m over at the center for social change in miami florida for those of you who are lost or just want to get your mindfulness and meditation practice up and running again or if you need a refresher, or if you have never meditated before and you were interested in the benefits of meditation and how it may improve your life, reduce your stress, and make you a more focused and concentrated individual, you may reach out to me directly at brian at mindfulnessofdoom.com. Today, our guest is Ariane Traverso. She is the president of the Greater Miami Holistic Chamber of Commerce is quite the mouthful, but it's a collection of holistic-minded businesses. Ariane, how are you doing today? I'm great and super honored and thankful to be here with you guys today. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the show. Yes. Mindfulness of doom. You have a retreat coming up in Bali next week. Yes. Do you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so I've been leading international retreats for close to 10 years. Yeah, probably close to 10 years. Uh, maybe a little less, but whatever. So I've done stuff, you know, like Caribbean, all the way to Central America, Thailand, Mexico, um, locally in the United States. Um, and now I'm going to Bali. And it's awesome. basically a process where, you know, people immerse themselves in not just the yogic practice, you know, we practice a lot, we go through different, you know, specific types of practices to leave like lasting impressions. But also we immerse ourselves in like cultural experiences. So it's not just you know, do yoga all day, we like go on really cool adventures. So it's like adventure slash yoga. That's awesome. So your retreats are not just something that you would go to be at a resort someplace and do a bunch of yoga poses, but rather it's an immersive experience yes. in the culture. Yes. That's really fantastic. Yeah. A lot of times I think about the retreats that people organize is you, you're really trying to escape yourself by going to another country and then you don't really go anywhere or do anything except for the one activity that you sign up to do. Yeah, no, and, like we're going to go to like some islands for the entire day and then we're going to go to the temples and have a private ceremony. Wow. Super exciting. Yeah, I know. Is there Very any cool. particular type of yoga that is practiced on your retreats or is it kind of a non-denominational yoga retreat? non-denominational yoga. Um, well, I was the first acro yoga teacher here in Miami in pretty much all of the Southeast United States. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. 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 I was like the first certified teacher. And so all the people doing acro yoga, most of them are all my children. And so basically my retreats all encompass some acro. Um, you mm -hmm. know, they don't have to be high level, but it's, it's such a way to like break down barriers to 
you know, make better friendships, to look internally and, you know, see like what comes up when you're doing things that are challenging. So all my retreats have acro in them and Thai massage because I've been doing mm. and teaching Thai massage for 10 years and then non-denominational yoga. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I just uh, actually just this Tuesday, uh, I went to we had a previous guest on our podcast, Brian Kerr, and I went with him to his ashram, the Yoga Research Center in South Miami. And I went and heard Swami Joy Tiramayananda speak on some of the sutras that he wrote. He's actually a, um, a professor of yoga. Before he became a Swami, he was a professor in India. Now he's like 86 years old. He's been teaching oh, here for like 30 or 40 years. Yes, but, I've heard of this place. Um, oh, it's amazing. And you would never know it's there either. It's it's in the middle of a neighborhood and the entire property is surrounded by trees and, and shrubs. You wouldn't be able to see in. It looks just like a regular driveway. And then people just walk up and open the gate and walk in. And then there's this whole ashram back there. And uh, it was great. That's awesome. They do... Um, they do Advaita Vedanta mm-hmm. yoga, non-dualist yoga from like the, the Veda tradition. Okay. Um, that's more of like the, you know, hardcore religious background yoga yeah. and yeah. not so much the modern postural yoga. Yeah. So what is your, what is your background in yoga? How did you, how did you come into it? And can you tell us a little bit about what your? Yeah, of course. Um, so basically I started in a very um, non-traditional like it's called, it was called the It's Yoga System. I think they've changed the name, but whatever. And I got really like, I, I was never athletic, but this, like something grabbed me and I was like, I got to keep doing this because it was hard. And I was like, yes, like I, I, you know, I'm kind of type A personality. So I was always like, you know, I, I always like to be challenged. So I was very challenged. And then like all the mental stuff happened. You know, I, I found like peace I was like, what is this quiet stuff? <laughs> um, and then after that, I like stopped practicing for a year. I moved to Spain. I lived in Spain for a while, came back to Miami and then started practicing a very traditional uh, practice called Shivananda. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Shivananda, I then started exploring Ashtanga, Jiva Mukti. So my main practices were Shivananda, Ashtanga, and Jiva Mukti. And then I met Acro. Um, but from there, you know, I've studied some Budokan. I mean, I've done, it's been like close to 15 years, so you can imagine, you know, lots of Anusara. So yeah. And then just, you know, kind of just figured out how to do my practice. And now I do super traditional Hatha yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it back to basics people. Yeah. What I find so interesting about you and sort of where you come from, your background is through all of this yogic training, you become a very spiritual type of person, but at the same time, you have this incredible business acumen, and you also come from an advertising background. What what is that like to blend the two, and and what's your story behind that? Um, it's super fun, let me tell you, because for a while, like I felt like I couldn't blend. You know, I had to live in these like two very separate worlds of like, well, this is my you know. Uh, photography and advertising graphic design world and then on this side I have my like yoga practices and my teachings and my trainings and I come from a fairly long uh, line of entrepreneurs from both of my parents like my grandparents my great-grandparents were all entrepreneurs or immigrants from Europe to Peru and then um, my father immigrated here you know as an entrepreneur as well so or, or with us and I've always had this like 
very creative side to me, like lots of ideas. I'm like, oh, we can do that and we can do that. Why don't we put this together? And I was so, I guess, like divorced from allowing myself to like step into that role of being, you know, more of a, an entrepreneur because I had these ideals that were like, well, no, I'm a yogi. Like, you know, we have to live really simple and like the material things. And I, I wasn't allowing myself to, to even enjoy having the ideas of what, you know, having a successful business would look like. And then I just threw all that out the window. <laughs> I was like, oh, that sucks. No, um, you know, yoga is union. Why am I not allowing myself to, to fulfill one of my passions? And then I started working with an amazing coach. And she kind of was like, here's the magic wand. You can do whatever you want. And I was like, what? I can do whatever I want. Wait, she no gave way. you a magic wand? That's amazing. I want one. No. Well, I have one. Is it like a Harry I Potter wand or is it more like it a, is. Okay. It is, but it has some spikes on it, just, you know, just uh, to Oh, that's hot. Like. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. Yes. Wait, did the wand choose you? So, the wand chose me. And and yes. and is there a, an alter ego uh dark lord who has the opposite wand that you have to battle? Cuz this sounds like I have a five. It sounds like a movie. Yeah. It's not Star Wars so much. Okay. No. Oh my God. I watched it the other night. It was awful. Oh yeah. Um, I saw it. I, <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved it, but it was bad. <laughs> like I still loved yeah, it anyway. It was, like Disney. it was Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. In the yoga meditation, ultra spiritual realm, there's all this talk about love and light and creating your own abundance and being in the flow and everything as long as you're giving will take care of you and at the same time we meet all of these yogis and meditation practitioners who are flat broke and strapped for cash all the time what's the deal with that yeah that's the question i've i asked myself and that's actually my inspiration for creating my company called busy yogi it's because i saw how yogis whether they realize it or not, and so I'm not like throwing anybody under the bus, we live in a lack mentality because I found myself and my and friends of mine and business parts of mine, um, you know, oh, I can't afford that. Oh, that's too expensive. Oh, I'm broke. Oh, I don't have the money. And, and it started annoying me. I was like, what, why? Why are we, why is everybody broke? You were annoyed by poor I, people? I was, I was annoyed at my own voice, at my belief that, you know, rich people were, you know, uh, the ones who hired me, if they hired me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was annoyed at the fact that, you know, I really wanted to go take a, a training, you know, and, and yoga trainings are expensive. You know, I, I'm a teacher trainer and my trainings start at $3,000. So I wanted to do more continuing education and the, oh, I can't afford it. Oh, I have to leave for a week, which means that I'm not working. So I was, I didn't even know the fact that I was still, you know, trading time for money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like, wait, I, I want to, I want to do whatever I want. Why am I being limited by money? Money is just energy. So I, I still feel like because the way that the yoga industry and is created, and again, I owned a studio, so I'm pretty like, attuned to salaries that yoga teachers can make. It's not an abundant thing. And and in Miami, it's a little different because we have so many opportunities, so many like open spaces, so many events that we can create. But you know, you, you maybe move to cities that aren't as 
you know, uh, movie, movie and shaky. And, you know, you have to teach like 30 classes a week to be able to make, you know, a, a, a minimal wage. Um, you know, some people yeah. make 30 bucks a class, 40 bucks a class at the most. Yeah, and that's exhausting. So, I mean, physically demanding and the attention that's required. And, yeah. and what yeah. I'm hearing that there's this, this culture of mistaking being poor, being broke for modesty, that there's this value in right. being modest and we're, we're, well, we're I, missing I the mark here. There's this uh, history that a lot of people don't recognize there that I wouldn't say yogis, but aesthetics, people who uh, became monks or nuns. Uh, and this tradition is how most of, most of yoga and most of meditation practices came to the West was through the, the more religious route. And then now it's become more of a secular thing. But that image of being yeah. a renunciate, of having to renounce uh, worldly desires is still kind of attached to that worldview. And in India, the traditional path was to have, there was four stages of your life. There was, you, first you were the student mm-hmm. and then you were the, then you were the, uh, the household, household owner. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Householder. Then you were a retiree and then a renunciate. And the idea was that you were, you know, when you were a retiree, you're, you're kind of helping to raise the children and like you've kind of done your job and, but you're, you know, you get to be the grandparent, but it's at the end of your life when you decide, Hey, I've done my duty. Nobody needs me anymore. Uh, it's time. For, well, I mean, they don't, they still need you, but you only have a limited amount of time left. And so you decide for your own personal spiritual development to give up and renounce your desire for wealth or for, you know, any inheritance or money. And then you, you go and become a renunciate, you go and become a monk and decide to spend the rest of your life on your own religious purposes. And that, that image doesn't work in, in, in modern India and especially doesn't work in America, but the idea of not glorifying money, not glorifying, um, wealth is still very prevalent. And I think it has good things to be learned from it, but I also don't, you know, like you guys are both uh, saying, like it, it isn't, doesn't seem to be something that you really need to have. You got to be able to survive, but you can still do your practice. Yeah. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. Exactly. They're not mutually exclusive. And, you know, if, if, if I've learned one thing is that everything in life has to come to a balance. And again, that's one of the goals in yoga, right? You're balancing the body so that it's healthy through asana, you're balancing the mind so that it can find that equanimity through the meditation, through chanting. And why is it that the material world gets cast aside? And it's like, well, no, you know, I don't, I don't want this, or I can't have this. And um, it's, it's, I think it's, it's something so simple to shift it. We just have to be aware of it first, like everything, right? You need to know that there's a problem and then, well, what's the solution? And to me, the solution is something very simple. It's like, well, let's look at what's the current model and how can we either improve it or how can we, you know, just change it. Um, and you know, changing things takes a lot of work and it takes, it takes belief and, but I don't see why it's not doable. And, but this, you know, this can also go into like so many professions, not just being a yogi, you know, like mm-hmm. when, when I've asked my students throughout the years, I'm like, how many of you guys here raise your hands if yoga has changed your life? The whole entire room lifts their hands. Like, what do you, what do we say about that? You know, that's massive. 
that's not just like, yeah, oh, you know. Be some value to that mm-hmm. that is monetizable, that, that that can be measured aside from this this intrinsic value. That, that's And the way that our economy is set up is that intrinsic value often doesn't get rewarded monetarily. It's more about service or products, yeah. which we've managed to, we've managed to package yoga in a way that it can be paid for, but there seems to be a price cap to it. Yeah. And again, you know, I, I understand that. And, but there's also people that, you know, will pay you. I mean, I've had amazing clients who Mm. have paid me hundreds of dollars for one session, you know, and it's just like, it's mind blowing. And they're like, no, it's because this is what you're doing for me and nobody else can do that. You know, so it's, it's finding value in, in the practice, but it's also finding value in the way you deliver that practice. That is a, is a very, very marked difference. Right. You know, if you show up with, with, you know, your own belief system, you know, your pillars of, of how you deliver the system of, you know, the amount of work and time that you've put into the system and everything comes with experience. You know, I don't expect, you know, I just finished a teacher training yesterday and I'm going to go around charging a thousand dollars a class. Right. That doesn't make sense. But as we get that, you know, level of, of authenticity, of originality, of uniqueness underneath our belts and allow ourselves to, to demonstrate that, then that's when things change. There's a similar story in the martial arts business world where for years, the martial arts in Japan were studied as uh, it was a, a cast of people who were studying martial arts and they would be expected to spend their lives studying it so that the curriculums were quite long. But around the 1860s, those things changed and the people who were teaching martial arts became businessmen. They became, they, they were no, they lost their status. And, and the ones who stuck around in the, in the, um, in that business had to find a way to sell their craft. And they found that there was a lot of interest at first because a lot of farmers and pe- people who had never had access to that kind of information went, Oh, I get to learn what the samurai did. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to go and study. And then they got to learn the same. They were taught the way the samurai were, but they didn't have the the right dedication to it to spend their entire life learning this craft. So the teachers were losing students. Mm-hmm. And so what they had to do was they had to simplify the curriculum, make it easier. But then they were still bleeding students. But then around 1890, this guy, Unue Shun, who is the founder of modern judo, he came up with this idea of, you know what, uh, I need a way for my students to see their own progress. And so he invented the, the belt system, which everybody knows karate and knows like, oh, go get my yellow belt or go get my white belt and you work up the black belt. That's a new, that's a relatively modern con- uh, concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would use that outward display of rank as a way for the students to see their progress. And it helped move martial arts from martial arts to martial ways and then into martial business. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for them to sell. And nowadays it's become martial sport where uh-huh. the uh, most of the – you go to any martial arts studio, all, I mean 90% of them, just to pull a number out of thin air, but the vast majority of them have this belt system. And a lot of them have 10 belts. Yes. Yes, they do. And they sell – the belts. When they do the test, you have to pay for the classes and then you have to pay for the belt and then you have to pay for the examination. And it becomes a way of making money more than it was a way of teaching the student because the belt doesn't really matter. 
But if it gets the students to stay, if it helps the business along, then it becomes something that is useful for that for that industry. And I imagine in yoga, which inherently, if you know anything about it, you can do it at home for free. You right. don't need to uh, you don't need someone to teach you, but most people need a teacher simply because they just they don't they don't have the motivation. They need the class structure. Well, well, hold on yeah. now. It's not just the motivation. Like you can seriously hurt yourself. Let me just throw that out there. Like you know, um, you could you, yeah, YouTubing, YouTubing yoga, headstands. yeah, headstands like a, a funky backbend. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, trying to do advanced poses, um, wear and tear over the years will definitely leave a nice mark. Especially nowadays, yeah. like think who's practicing yoga. It's like the you know maybe the mom or the entrepreneur or the whatever person that works the nine to five they've been sitting in a chair for like 10 hours and then they get up and go to yoga class and then it's like all right let's bend our bodies in 35 different ways really fast that's most of the yoga that's happening right now it's turned into gym yoga so yes i I the modern pastoral yoga Mm -hmm. yeah the so I agree that you can have a totally safe and beautiful practice at home for the rest of your life. But there is, and again, this is where the value of having that teacher, that guide, the one that, you know, especially my teacher trainings, I go, you guys, I'm training you to turn your eyes into like scanners of possible misalignments. Right. So you know what to do. You know where to guide people. You know, if you keep twisting this way for 10 years, like, you know, you're going to feel it. You're, you're definitely going to feel it. But that goes for every sport. It's always good to have somebody that knows just a little bit more than you <laughs> or a lot more than yeah. you. <laughs> As a martial arts teacher, I agree with you. It's very important to have a teacher. However, my, my, personal pra- my personal belief is that we should be pushing, as teachers, we're pushing our students to, be, to rely on us less and less. You know, the, I think the mark of a good teacher is someone who becomes progressively useless. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have the student learn to to grow into their own practice. But I think that's one of the, the, the problems with being a business person mm-hmm. and then also teaching something that is inherently free in the sense that you can do it on your own. Like you're teaching somebody to not rely on you and you're basically letting your business slowly out. And that's so you constantly have to keep getting new students. It's kind of this this conundrum of as, as a teacher. It's like, oh, well. If I tell them they don't need me, <laughs> they'll leave. Right. Well, there's there's this thing that happens that we talked about this the other night that you know when when your service is as good as it is, your students will refer their family and their friends, and that cycle continues, and your your pool of potential students is virtually limitless. Yes. Your product and service is good. Yeah, I agree. And also, there's something to say about like you know. Corey, you're, you're a martial arts teacher. You know, Brian, you're a mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm a yoga teacher, meditation teacher. And something that... I also teach meditation. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I've actually taught meditation at your studio in Trio Yoga what? once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was helping uh, Marlena cover one of her classes. She invited me to do a tea meditation there. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You were there that day. But, and I used um, to play... Uh, I really like that I used that to play place. flute there with Katie, uh, with Katie Love yes. when she was there. I remember. It was a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, Studio had lots of good memories. Yeah. But um, I don't know if you guys have ever run into this in, in you know, I, we've all been teaching for many years, but at, at some point, and this is where like the, 
the branching out of my, like I hardly teach public classes anymore. I, I have like just like focus on trainings and, and retreats. There was a point where like the words just couldn't come out of my mouth anymore. And it's because I think my, my attention had shifted into like different ways to deliver my message that wasn't being in the classroom, you know, six, seven days a week, eight, nine times, you know. Um, and I think this is where, where there's a big opportunity for people to, to see, okay, well, if, if I've been doing this for X amount of time, right. And for me, it was just getting repetitive. Like I knew I was helping people feel good because of all the different, you know, modalities that I could fit into my, uh, yoga class. Like, you know, I don't even know if I can call it like prop, you know, pure yoga anymore. I think it's just like really conscious movement. Um, but I, it was like, I just couldn't teach anymore. I was like bored of like hearing my own voice. And there was something inside me that was like, there is more, there's more. <laughs> Ari, there's more. Um, and aligning myself to my strengths was, I think like life changing because I like regained my passion. Even owning the studio was fun, but I'm not a manager. And when you own a like physical space, you got to manage people, you got to manage things. It, there's a lot of like managing. And that wasn't my forte either. And it wasn't until I realized that like, hey, these are like where these are areas that you can really shine that I feel like I kind of re-stepped back into to being able to serve in a bigger way without ex- necessarily doing the yoga teaching teaching, 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 teaching. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, certainly. Uh, And especially if you want to spend your time helping to promote yoga, promote uh, health and well-being in people's minds and bodies, like teaching one at a time is the slow route. And it's something that I think a lot of teachers have to go through. But at a certain point, if you're going to, if you're going to become a teacher's teacher, if you're going to write books, if you're going to run retreats and, and, you know, kind of do the, uh, the harder, higher level things, it takes you a little bit away from the interaction face to face with individual students, but it, it ends up spreading the, you know, the good word, so to speak, far more effectively Mm -hmm. because you're not spending it, your time one teacher, one person at a time, as opposed to like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to set up this event where hundreds of people can come and experience it all and hire other teachers to help me, you know, do this yeah, thing. Exactly. Boy, it frees up your schedule quite a bit as well. It's like a complete restructuring of the way that business is done and the way that your lifestyle is. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, that's like kooky, right? Yeah, like, it is Ooh. in a way. It's yeah. in, in some senses, you're still a teacher, but you're a teacher in a different capacity and yeah. the abundance is allowed to flow in faster and in a higher volume because you're now affecting more people and for delivering that amount of value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know I think uh, of the three of us, I'm probably uh, on the other side of the of the argument about making money um, because it, it inherently just makes me uncomfortable. I don't I don't like the idea of it, particularly because I mean I know um, Ari, you mentioned that. You, you, you paid for your teacher training, um, but my training was free. Oh, wow. Uh, but I spent, you know, months on end in a monastery in China 
And it's like, it was still paid for by Buddhist donors, Mm -hmm. but all of the fundraising, all of the, the money was behind the scenes. None of the students ever saw that. That was all part of the politics behind the, the, you know, the cogs in the system, but the individual students never had to see that. So to me, it feels weird that I make my living off of something that was given to me for free. Uh, and it's kind of, I know that I shouldn't feel bad about that, but I even, it's a conversation Brian and I have often when I set my prices for my classes, Brian's often, often like your offerings are, are priced way too low. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I don't want it. He's like, no, they're priced way too low. You need to value yourself more. Dude, you're not going to be able to survive. Like, it's like, like this month-to-month thing is ridiculous. I just want to give it away for crazy. free. Well, but I, but I, I do have a, 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 you know, a side note to that. I mean, you said that sure, please. you did your stuff for free, but yet. Uh, well, most of it. I mean, well, most of it. Okay, I, I, most I mean, of it. I paid, I've been doing martial arts for 25 years, and a lot of that wasn't free, but a lot, but some of it was. So, and well, neither was your that. master's degree in Asian studies. Yeah, that that cost me eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, somebody got paid for that. So, but you said that when you were in China in the monastery, that there were a lot of like fundraisings and things happening in the background to allow you to be there. Now, those people were exchanging money so that you could be there. There's a value yeah, in that. Th- this is true. The 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 fundraiser though, the head fundraiser, she was a nun and she doesn't have any money herself, but she's quite famous in the Buddhism world. She's able to do it. Yeah. There was she still went, money getting. Right. I mean, it. you can't, you can't live in the world without money unless you are a renunciate. Right. And that's just not a, a lifestyle that most people can do. That's not even a lifestyle that, that some people can do. It's only a lifestyle that very few right. people have the temperament or the, the ability to make it work. Yeah. Um, it is an option. It is an option. But, and that's what I was going to say. I'm like, well, if you right. want to do that, then do that with full integrity and do that from, you know, every inch of your soul and, and be okay with it and, and be like, oh, I don't need the new iPhone. Like I'm chilling here in my little like monastery. I'm hanging out. Like people are feeding me. I'm good. I'm giving a massive service by doing my practices, right? That's like the essence of Buddhism. Like you are doing the work for the rest of the world. So it's a completely selfless practice. But I don't believe that there's like an in-betweeny. You're like, well, I'm kind of an renunciate and I'm good. Like either like own the fact that, guess what? There is this thing called currency. Like, you know, prana was the first measure of energy. Like energy is moved. So if currency is something that we need, you know, I don't know if you have children, but like, I want to have a baby. Those things are expensive. (laughs) That's what I hear. They're expensive. And I don't want to have to like, you know, give up on certain values and like non-negotiables that, you know, I was raised with that my my husband was raised with um, so that I can come from this like austere place. Like I don't have a donor. Maybe one day, maybe one day somebody would just be like, here, Ari, have all this money. Like it's, I think it's a good thing for people to go out and learn the system and learn to, you know, find their own way in the world and to make a living worthy of their time. I think the, I think the major hesitance of the people, and I I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself, but, um, I think the major hesitance of that lifestyle of, of making money for those yogis and for those of us who are hesitant about it is because they see what happens when people get to the top 
and they stop caring about people and they see what they do with money and they see how it hurts people and they see how irresponsible people can be with it. And then they start to make decisions based solely upon the money when the money is just a facilitator. But what like I gave this example the other day to Brian, I'm not sure if we did it on the podcast, but it was the idea of like you, you make a movie and it, it, it's a really good movie and it sells okay. So they make a sequel and they rush out the sequel and the sequel is not as good as the first one, but it makes a lot more money because they had a lot bigger marketing budget. And then they make a third one and then the third one is rushed and it's even worse, but it makes even more money because they had a bigger marketing budget. And then you start to have a franchise that just is just this terrible movie production that only the first one was good, but it keeps pouring in money because they have gamed the system to figure out how to get people to buy tickets, even though they're not making a quality product anymore. You mean like Star Wars? Uh, I was thinking Jurassic Park, but yeah, Star yeah, Wars is yeah. one of those things. Yeah. Well, this, this comes mean, down to balance and ethics, yeah. right? If, 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 okay, so I'm wealthy. Are and you? Yeah, I am. Well, and, and I have everything that I need. And the money follows that and I care about people and I value life and I have a code of ethics that I follow. Can you define wealth for me? Because that wealth can be is a mindset. confusing. Yeah. 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 Wealth, wealth, is, is, a a, wealth is a mindset. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's value times leverage mm-hmm. and from, from a, a concrete standpoint. And then there's a mindset to it that I believe that I create wealth and I believe that I have wealth. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I always like to, to say this. I think it's, it's my own quote that I, <laughs> I I'm, you quoting yourself. I'm, I'm quoting myself. <laughs> we'll put it in the yep, blog. If more yogis yeah. could be millionaires, I guarantee that the world would be in better shape. Like, if you gave me a bunch of money, like a bunch, like let's just be obscene. Like if you gave me like $5 million, and that might not be obscene, but to me that's like, whoa, that's so much money. Okay. You gave me 5 million bucks. Like I am passionate about like ocean, right? Like cleaning up the ocean. Who can I donate money so that like we can clean up the ocean? Elephants and orangutans. I'm wildly passionate about them. How can we help? Like, can I donate more money to the orangutan? Orphan children in Peru. Like, can I help orphan children in Peru? Like right now with, with my income, like, again, you know, I, I do well, but not well enough that I'm, you know, I give like 20 bucks here and there. Cause I'm like, Ooh, the poor baby elephant, here's 20 bucks, you know, or whatever. But like, I'm limited. Like I don't have like an abundance of like extra money. And I know amazing people who are like ridiculously wealthy that they have like organizations for children, like they do stuff with the money. Now we don't focus on those people. We focus on like the Koch brothers. So we're just like, uh, evil, you know, like there's so many. Well, like- yeah. Th- Cause they're making the same argument though. They're saying, I mean, cause that's, this is the, the trickle down economics ar- argument that like, oh yeah, if you give rich people money, they'll create more jobs and they'll, they'll trickle it down to people and they don't do it. So it's like, we can make that same like, yeah, oh, if I had a lot of money, I could do a lot of good with it. But but then when you give people a lot of money, they, they don't do any good with it. Some people. They use it to make... Some people. Some people. But, but then how do we make that, that... Then that becomes a huge argument about, well, how do we... Which people are better than others? And, you know, how, how do we draw the lines? And that's not the... No. 
that's that's not the path of a no, yogi. I, you know? I, if I had to assert an opinion that we as mindfulness practitioners and yoga practitioners, the the values that we have, it is our social responsibility to get good with money so that we can shift the world in the direction of the values that we maintain and the values that we mm-hmm. share. Because it's one thing to teach some classes and it's another thing to start a huge business that can make a wider impact yeah. on people in the same way that the classes do or to start a foundation that gives people access to our knowledge and practice who otherwise wouldn't have access. I, I agree. And and when you say like we give people money, like no one's giving me money. I'm creating the opportunity for money to be made, right? I'm doing the work in a conscious- Yeah, you're performing right, a service. Like you, you've earned it. I'm conscious work that, you know, having conversations with people, leading people through meditations that aren't just like close your eyes and like focus on your breath. It's like, hey, you know, let's like, let's create a foundation of, of ethics, you know, and, and whatever we can, we can sit here and, and have these, well, what's ethics, you know, ethics for you might be different than me, of course. But again, you know, like Brian said, we're all like mindful, um, you know, mindful people, and we kind of have a commonality. So if we just base upon a very simple commonality that, you know, uh, we give as much as we can, you know, kindness, compassion, you know, humility, like, I think that we've, we've kind of misconstrued the word humility for being broke. Like, I can be humble. Like, I, one, one of my, um, my grandparents, he was a very wealthy man. And you never would have guessed it. Never would have guessed it because he was so freaking humble and generous with his money, you know, and I, and the other side of my family was very poor. And same thing, you would have guessed that they were wealthy because they were generous people. So it just comes to a place where like, how can we create an effect with what we have? If that means that you have very little and you're still generous, but you can still provide for your, you know, like my dad tells me stories. Oh, you know, we had one pair of pants and like one pair of shoes and you wore those till they broke. You know what? I have that same philosophy. Well, I have more than one pair of shoes, but like, I don't just go and be like, woohoo, let me go buy a pair of Gucci's. Like, whatever. I could give a shit about that. But it's about like, well, what about the shoes that are half, half used? You know what? I'm going to sh- grab my closet once every couple of months and donate as much possible to the kids in Peru. So I, every time I go to Peru, I know that like people that are less fortunate than me are wearing my shoes, that they have my shirts. So that's also trickle down economics in a different way. Let me uh, ask you another question. I only know about yoga in general, but uh, and Buddhism in specific, because that's where my, my education is in. But uh, they align a lot in the ideas of the causes of suffering yes. and the causes of things uh, such as uh, it's clinging and attachments, mm-hmm. wanting something and not wanting something are the same things. Mm-hmm. This is, this is this idea of non-dualism yeah. of like you're clinging to, uh, n- not necessarily material things, but also to ideas. So yes. when you cling to an idea and that idea changes, you're still clinging to something that isn't there anymore mm-hmm. and that causes you suffering. Yeah. So wanting of wealth is a cause for more pain in the world in like the textual idea of, mm-hmm. 
of the teachings. But but it's a necessity. You have to have your livelihood. Right. So making a, a life off of teaching, I think, is tremendously honorable. I agree. But at the same and but then where do we draw the line? Where do we say, okay, a yoga teacher training worth three thousand dollars is worth it, but if you start charging ten thousand dollars, now you're just gouging people. Okay. Like right. where 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 does that so like I have no real uh, – I haven't thought this out. I'm kind of coming with this up on the fly. So I don't mean this to be an attack at no, all. I'm just kind of it throwing – It doesn't out a, feel like it uh, at all either. Okay, um, good, good. Well, so then this is my experience as, as a business coach for yogis. One, I have a ton of my clients who have like three jobs because teaching is just not cutting it, right? We said that like there's only so much teaching you can do. So they either have to bartend at night or they're, you know, doing like three or four different other things that are allowing them to be at like a comfortable level. Okay. And this is like from, again, my experience. So, eh, you know, that kind of answers like a piece of your question. It's like, well, we're doing this honorable thing, but it's just not enough. So then we have to go do these other things. Like I have a friend of mine who is enrolling in my program, she's a massage therapist at a strip club. And she's a yoga teacher. I mean, like, wouldn't we rather, like, give her the possibility and the, you know, because she hates it. She's like, oh, I hate it, but I make really good money. And I hear that all the time. Oh, I hate my job, but I make really good money. And it's like, and, you know, I teach yoga because I love it and I wish I could do it more. But, you know, I have a kid. I'm a single mom. So that conversation comes up quite a bit. Um, The desire for wealth, you know, I think we can take that also with a grain of salt because, I mean, do you desire to be a gazillionaire? Most people I know don't. Like, I don't want to be a gazillionaire. If I am, great. But, like, that's not my, like, main goal in life, you know? And I think most people that I speak to, same thing. They just want to be able to have a livelihood that, allows them to do their practice, to share their practice, to eat like really good, healthy food. You know, organic food is expensive as heck. Um, To be able to give back more, to volunteer more, to have more free time. Like those are the kinds of conversations that I have with, you know, my teacher trainees, with my students, with, you know, teachers that I've hired in the past. At Trio, and look, check this out now. One of the, the main reasons, well, there's two main reasons. One's my, my rent got doubled, okay, by my landlord. Doubled. It went from like... Are you talking about the reason that Trio Yoga had to, yeah, to, had to shut mm-hmm. its doors? Because we were yeah. very successful. Everybody loved my studio, you know? We, yeah, I mean, in Miami, your studio was probably the most famous yoga studio. Everybody it. It was amazing. It was, amazing. It was a great space. And so, yeah, I, we had heard I upside down in there. I'd never done that yeah. before. <laughs> so look, my rent got doubled, closed the doors. There was no way. Like I would have had to give money out of my own pocket. Me as an owner. Is that, yeah. is that, there's no law no. that says they, they, my lease was over nothing. And they were like, Oh, you want to wow. resign a lease? Here you go. $9,000 a month. Now I either would have had two choices. One is to, pay everybody less because the payroll that we provided was the highest expense. Okay. Because we believe that we should pay our teachers better than all the other studios. Cause most studios in Miami will pay you about $5, $5.50 a person. 
we started at like six, 650. And depending if you were like a senior teacher, a little bit more. Okay. That was my highest expense. My mother, who is like a numbers genius, when our first quarter, she looked at my numbers and she's like, um, you're not going to survive. All your money's going to your teachers. And still that wasn't enough because I knew people had to have like two or three other jobs and we couldn't provide enough classes for somebody to just stay there for like four or five hours teaching and teaching and teaching. Like that's, that's not really, you know, a logistical thing for anybody. You know, after two classes, I'm like, oh, my voice, oh my, you know, I've demoed so much or so the, it, it comes with like a slight paradox. It's like, well, okay, I either could take the money away from my teachers so I could leave the studio open so that it could benefit the greater population or, and raise my prices because I, I would have had to do several things in order to, to pay the exuberant rent. So what was- Yeah, $9,000 a month. That's ridiculous. Yeah, so, so now it's like, you know, as a... As- I mean, it is Miami, but, but, yeah, but still, like, that location was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it no. wasn't like, in no. Brickle, you know? Right, but that part of town is being developed right now, and the property values are increasing, the, the taxes are increasing, everything is increasing in that area, and it, it makes sense that, I mean, uh, sorry, I come from an urban planning perspective, and just knowing what's happening in all of the different neighborhoods, you got, you got shafted, yeah. and... It's uh, it sucks, and um, but I also see that there are opportunities that open up for you after right. that yes. happened. But like back to my point, like you know, we're talking about how like money isn't that important yet because of one person's decision to you know double my rent, everybody got screwed. And and let me let me also say like as a yoga studio owner, like I didn't make a lot of money, which means that I worked like a maniac. Because I had to run the studio, teach the classes, not only teach the classes at Trio, teach the classes in other places, because I couldn't teach all the classes mm. at my own studio. Like, and you know, I, I owned it with um, two other people. So, actually, I was like, for the last two years of being a studio owner, I was miserable. I was exhausted. I was like, I, I like lost my, what, you know, what, what did Austin Powers have? His mojo. His mojo. <laughs> like, my mojo was gone. Like constantly the conversations i had with my business partner was like oh my god i'm so tired yeah, and you can't, I'm so tired. can't teach yoga from that how, how, did, how do you operate that. from from that energy that you know energy poor state you know i think that that maybe answers your question of like the the what is wealth and and you know having teaching as a humble and a and a you know beautiful profession like that's kind of the reality yeah, I think there's a there's another important distinction as well that's worth mentioning in, in what Corey was asking, which is doesn't the desire for wealth, the wanting for wealth create suffering? And the answer is yes, it does. Anytime you want something and you don't have it, it creates suffering. But there's a difference between wanting wealth and knowing that you already have wealth. And, and for what, some what if reason- I, and sorry, sorry, Brian, yeah. let me just shift that in for Like, what if the desire for wealth turns into inspiration what if we change that instead of suffering like oh i don't have this it's like you know what this is what i want and i know that by giving my services in a a higher way in a better way in a a larger way i'm going to be able to help people and attain my goal like that's inspiration to me it's not like i don't sit here suffering because like i don't have a maserati (laughs) 
<laughs> right. Yeah. And it, it's like, what is the, what is the purpose and intention of having the wealth? What good does it do? And I think that's a lot of us miss. It's like, oh, we're just looking for security. And when we're looking for security, then we're coming from a place of lack, like we don't have enough. Right. But if mm-hmm. we're looking to create and to give generously and we can tap into our bank accounts without having to worry that there's not enough in there, then it's life just runs smoothly. And I, I can, I can give an example. It's like, so Corey, you have this amazing apprenticeship program that you run out of your house mm-hmm. that are, right, you got to check this. So Corey has people that stay with him and work with him as, as apprentices. And he does all of these courses one after the other in uh, Buddhism, meditation, self-defense, martial arts. It's unbelievable. And language acquisition, philosophy. Yeah. yeah, the way that it's set up is that Corey is renting a house and he has other roommates, right? So there's like an inconvenience factor. But imagine that, you know, your prices were set in a certain way and your business was set up a certain way that within a six month to a year period, you could afford to buy a house or some place that would become a monastery that is just dedicated to that and all of the other logistical stuff is just wiped off the map. It, it would yeah. be nice, but it, to me, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you're putting the cart before the horse. And th- this this gets into the business decision of like, what do I charge people for this program? And uh, you know, to me, like, I think it's a great program. Like, I'm I'm basically uh, attempting to be the Mr. Miyagi of South Florida, you know, where you can come and I will teach you everything that I know. Which is, uh, you know, not much, but but I've been doing it for 25 years. And I, instead of trying to teach 100 students a week, uh, you know, cramming them all into 10 classes and just really busting my back trying to to get this out, especially, you know, and, and talk about classes being exhausting. Yoga classes are exhausting, but when you're getting punched in the face at the same time, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. even more That's, exhausting. That adds a, a, a level of uh, intensity to it. Right. Uh, and so, so there's only so much of that I can do. I, I'm still young, but I don't feel as young as I should feel for being 32. Uh, but shouldn't the price point reflect that, right? I mean, there's a tremendous amount of value that somebody gets. Actually, I should I should put this the price on a sliding scale. The more you hit me, the more it costs. I mean, let's, let's um, but, you know, have um, you guys heard of like yeah. Maslow and and the hierarchy of needs and all that stuff? Yeah. Right. So, yes. I mean, the the more you go on the lower level, like you're still on this like foundation necessity. Like, I just need to pay for my food, yo. Like, that's all I really need right now. I need a house. I need to pay for my food. Now, like, I, I believe like they. they there's a extra level to the pyramid and it's like self-transcendence, you know? Mm-hmm. So the, the pyramid being personal accomplishment at the top, esteem below it, yeah. belonging below yeah. that, security below that, and physiological below that. Right. And on his deathbed, from what I understand, Maslow realized that above self-actualization, which he had at the top of the pyramid for a long time. Self, personal accomplishment. Uh, personal accomplishment above that he realized as he was dying that transcendence was the next step so i mean i feel like as we progress in our in our studies and our teachings and our offerings like we 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 kind of also have to allow ourselves to release that like feeling like i need i need i need and stepping into a, a place where like you know what there's things that i do want 
I don't need stuff anymore. Like I don't need food. You know, food is there. Like I accomplished that check. Like I can go to the grocery store and buy my food. Good. Okay. I've, I've worked my ass off, so I don't have to worry about food. I have a car. I have a house. I have two dogs. I have two bunnies and two snails. Great. I'm checked. <laughs> I had a fish, but he died. What are the snails' names? Uh, Rocket and Jet. <laughs> that is so ironic. <laughs> okay, so then it's like, how you know, if I want to keep moving up and and you know, and as mindful practitioners, you know, because I still do my practice, like I want to get to self transcendence. I don't need to be worrying about like, oh my god, how am I going to eat today? Right. Oh. No, the other thing is we're serving as examples for our students. Yeah. Like we're we're on this journey ourselves. And if we're piss broke and struggling to survive, how are we going to demonstrate what it is to live self-actualized, to live a fulfilled life? Well, I mean, I would argue that that, that the being broke – uh, has nothing to do with self-actualization, that you could be an enlightened being and you could be rich or you could be poor and that, that those two things are completely have nothing to do with each other. It's nice to to have that security, but I don't think you need to have that security in order to have that kind of enlightenment. No, no, no. I'm, I, I'm speaking about rich and poor is not as like the money that's in your bank account, because all of that is relative to what your expenses are and what yeah, your needs are. Exactly. I'm speaking about it from the perspective of a mindset. The wealthiest people can be piss broke in their bank account and the money will come back. Mm-hmm. They could lose everything and the money comes mm-hmm. back because the way that they show up, they attract it. People give them money because they know what to do with the money, um, where they have structures in place that just turn money into more money and they just know that that's just how they are. Yeah. And that's that to me, that just seems, um, it's just a world that I'm not part of and I don't really understand. But what happens is I, I drive, it is. A, yeah. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm not desiring of it. Like I've never in my life been very interested in money. Uh, but I found myself in the past couple of years, uh, uh, two years ago, I was working in Coral Springs, and I was having to drive. I'm so sorry. Two and a half hours every day <laughs> to go get beat up, uh, and to um, you know, I was teaching uh, self defense, and uh, well, I was teaching anti bullying and kidnapping prevention. Oh. So I would go into the schools after after schools and teach kids how to fight off potential kidnappers. How to like this is not like a karate class. This is like a real like I'm trying to put them in a car and I'm teaching them how to use the car against the attacker. So I basically got paid for mild child abuse. Yes. And the parents got to watch. It was really fun. I would drive down the highway and I would see the the billboards for the lottery. And I don't play the lottery. And I'm going to say this and I know I shouldn't say this, but it's a tax on the stupid. Um, because very few people win. And most of that money gets does they say it goes to education, but it's it's not really no. true. I mean, some of it does, but it's it's a money making scheme and the chances of winning it are much, much, much lower than getting struck by lightning. So you have a better chance of going out there and betting your friend a million dollars that you won't get struck uh, than you will winning the lottery. But I found, I catch myself daydreaming about it. And I don't play because I don't want to throw my money. I mean, if you have, if you have fun playing the lottery, if you pay, if you, if, it, if, you, if it, you're spending a dollar a week or whatever, it's not really going to break the bank, but that's but it's this desire that's causing the pain. 
And I I'd find I catch myself daydreaming about it. Like I don't care about money, but then I go, well, what if I did win $250 million? I'd buy that old church down there by University of Miami and turn it into a, a retreat center and make it my own personal ashram, you know? Uh, and I would have scholarships and hire teachers to come in and teach classes and, you know, get, get it accredited with, uh, you know, professors and have a uh, really cool classes. And, but that, that fantasy of wanting that security doesn't solve the problems of the real problems. It doesn't solve loneliness. It doesn't solve heartache. It doesn't solve, uh, your, you know, your personal spiritual development, like having that money, as your referent object to me seems really shallow. And I know that's not what either of you are arguing, but it's the first thing that comes into mind when, as soon as like that, Hey, like let's make this about money comes up and it's like, it's not about money. It's more about the having a, a, a livelihood that is worth your time. Since we are, since we all are going to die and your life is limited, do something with it that makes you happy. That makes it worthwhile. And the money can certainly alleviate some of the stresses of being alive, but it it doesn't make you happy. It, it's not about money, just like mindfulness isn't about reducing stress. Mm-hmm. Right, like we're we're creating value and doing what we do because we love doing it. It's a passion, yeah. and it makes a difference yeah. in our lives and in other people's lives. Just like practicing mindfulness or practicing yoga trains your attention and makes you a virtuous human being and a, a servant of humanity. And then as a, a happy byproduct, inner peace and reduced stress and good health comes just like when you're producing value for people, money just comes, yeah. and, um, but we have to be open to receiving. And it. money's just a tool. It's just yeah. a tool. Like that's what I see it as. I'm like, hmm. It has zero significance. Yeah. It's, magical it's magical how, like, how meaningless it is. Now you have all is. this like cryptocurrency. Like that's like even more magical. You're like, oh. That's incredibly that's magical. incredibly magical. <laughs> what is this? We, we should get our professor William Colachico back on the show. He was a guest, <laughs> one of our first guests, and he, he has a YouTube channel about cryptocurrency. Oh, I'm going to watch it because I'm very intrigued about this whole thing. So, I mean, you know, Again, money is just a tool. Like I'm going to Bali in a few days, you know, with an amazing group of people that have paid me. Actually, compared to like what I know some people charge for the treats, this retreat was like cheap, right? And it's like, well, we made it. Is the airfare included in the cost of the ticket? No, no, no. Um, But like for nine days, okay, nine days staying in in two beautiful locations with full transportation other than the plane ticket, all your meals, excursions, and teachings, right? Mm-hmm. It was like 1700 bucks. What? Wow. That's really cheap. Yeah, that's like 200 bucks a day. There that's you go. What? That is yes. such cheap. How can people register? Well, it's full. So <laughs> they cannot. How can they but contact you for the next one? Right? Huh? You'll be doing more of these retreats, right? Yeah, yeah. I have like Ireland and Peru. And Is there you know, a place that people something. can go to look up the information on our website you'd like to share? Yes, yes. Uh, busyyogi.com, B-I-Z-Z-Y, yogi.com. And, and what's so beautiful about that is that like I feel really good about the price that I'm offering, even though my business coach was like, what? It's so cheap. Why are you charging so cheap? I'm like, yo, because I can. 
because I can make this affordable to people that might not be rolling in the dough, you know, and, and I'm still going to come home with a really nice chunk of change, like really nice. And my co-teachers, because it's, it's three of us leading the retreat, you know? So, so there, I feel like there's a time and place where like we can offer things for, you know, spiritual growth. We can offer things because I've allowed myself to make, you know, to make money in other ways as well. You know, with, with my business coaching, like I have different revenue streams and they all make me really happy and they all help everybody else. If I, if I see it like that, I'm like, this is a win-win for everybody. Like I feel comfortable, you know, maybe, maybe beyond comfortable. Like, you know, again, I'm sitting in bed having this podcast, like I can make my own schedule. Like I've created a lifestyle that allows me to be happy. So my happiness is going to trickle into my husband. It's going to trickle into like my family. You see what I mean? Now, if I'm living in a place of lack where like, you know, I hate my job. Um, I don't have enough money to pay for everything. I'm always stressed. Like I'm going to turn into like, uh, like a mega asshole and then nobody's going to be happy. So, you know, I, I don't want this whole podcast to be about like, how do we feel about money? And like, you know, is money good? Is money bad? Should you always make money? Like if it was up to me, you know, we should live in a very, you know, socialist type of lifestyle, like very utopian where like everybody just has and nobody needs and everybody's equal. But, you know, again, we don't. We so don't. yeah, it's not I, reality. As a, as a yogi, I'm constantly t- telling people, hey, be present, be here, be now. Like, don't be living in, you know, oh, I wish the world was like this. Guess what? It's not. So what do we do with what we got? How are we going to navigate with our tools, with our, with our gifts? So that whatever we do is leaving an impact and creating a better legacy so that, you know, whether it's our children or maybe like my friend's kids, you know, have different values. They see the world that like, hey, you know what? I do want to be a millionaire and there's nothing wrong with that. Go for it, kid. Be a millionaire, but do good with that million. Do more than good. Do like 10 times what you feel like you could do. So I believe like that's where it all boils down to. You know, whether that's like being rich because you made it or because somebody gave it to you, just do good. That's it. And that way, I think like the conversation of like, oh, is money good? You know, guess what? Like wealth is just is like, like Brian said, it's your perception of it, you know, and and we shouldn't judge people because they're wealthy. I used to judge people because they were wealthy. What does that say about me? I don't judge people because they're wealthy. I judge them because they're assholes. Right. But I equated like, <laughs> oh, you're a millionaire, you know, because you see some people that are millionaires and you're like, oh, man, like I'm, you know, he might be, he might be a narcissistic asshole or, you know, he or oh, that lady's wearing Gucci shoes like, oh, she's a materialistic bitch. Yo, you know, but we don't know. That's the thing. Well, we it's don't amazing. know. We, like, and, and to go to get into that level of judgment and to to be that way about people. I mean, like that's completely counter to to who we are as, as practitioners and teachers. And it's, it's, it's not fair of us to cut it's people not off fair like of that. Us. I'm and, telling you, like, and it, I, cuts I, us all, it cuts ourselves off. Exactly. I've had a client, like she is a billionaire, like it's not a millionaire, it's a billionaire. And she lives in London. And like, I think if you Google her, she has like the most expensive house in London. Like she would hire me to like give her yoga classes. And 
you know, there was, everybody treated her as madame. And I treated her as my equal. And we've created a friendship over the years that like, you know, even her, like her people that work for her, they're like, oh my God, how, how are you going out to dinner with her? I'm like, because she's a human, you know, I'm not judging her because she has, you know, a billion dollars. She's a great person. She has like five charities. Like, so what if she wants to buy a diamond necklace? Like she can let her, you know, I'm not going to point the finger and be like, oh my God, that lady is, you know, she's materialistic. Like it all levels, it, it, it's like perception. You know, if you have a million dollars, like buying a hundred thousand dollar necklace, like isn't that big of a deal. Right. You know, like same with us. It's like, middle what a- class, like buying the, the latest iPhone is like, oh my God, this is not such a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you to a point. Uh, I think at when we're getting talking about levels of wealth that are in the billions and billions of dollars, then it, then I think it starts to come back and there's got to be a social aspect of like, and this is, this is outside the realm of our podcast, but the idea of like allowing individuals to accumulate so much wealth when so many in the world have so little and our governments just allow it to happen and encourage it to happen to the point where it causes the suffering of millions of people because these other people have found a way to game the system to the point where they can just, they could be countries in and of themselves as far as wealth, where they, that wealth could be used if we taxed people effectively and, you know, didn't allow so many loopholes in our system. And I mean, this is getting political, but this, this is, this is where like at the highest levels, it, it's so detached from what can one person do with that kind of wealth and they do so little good with it. There are philanthropists out there. There are lots of people spending their, their money in in good ways. But I I think that's the minority of of wealthy people. And I think that's just where like having money and glorifying money starts to bring people down this path of like, yeah, it's not an evil thing, but it can lead to evil behaviors. Not that I believe in evil, but I th- I think that that the the demons that are ca- that it causes are, are ones that we have inside of us, and it's important to be vigilant against it. We're just as likely to become rich assholes as we are likely to become poor assholes. But maybe the difference is uh, rich assholes can make a bigger impact, and uh, and that's what's scary about it. Yeah. But I don't know if it's if it's necessarily true that the majority of the wealthy. Uh, don't give back the the perceptions that we are taught. I mean, we we, we can we can have that political yeah. debate. Well, uh, we, we we should actually do add nauseum and actually do some research on that. It's very interesting. Well, I I did do research. In fact, I did four years, six years of research. Uh, uh, in fact, this is this is where <laughs> I went to grad school to have a PhD in international relations and uh, public policy. But I switched into Buddhist uh, to Asian studies studying Buddhism because it made me much happier. <laughs> so we could get into that another day. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but Brian, I do got, uh, I do got something to, to, to tell you, man. Yeah, man. What's going on? Uh, we haven't had any small talk today. Isn't that fantastic? I love that. It's, you know, we I wanted to say cut the small talk and get the important things in life, but I didn't get to say it because yeah, we, we went were right, right into, into it. it. Yeah, these, about the- dude. <laughs> I'm not- these are the important things in life. Look, time is limited. We're all going to die. And, you know, to to struggle for survival is like the small talk of life. Like, let's 
let's get ourselves past that place. Let's get ourselves to a place where we can live stress-free and be of service to humanity unencumbered by our own lacks. As we begin to wrap up this episode, and before we get to our sponsors, Ari, I want to give you an opportunity to plug the Yoga Expo that's coming up. Would you let our listeners know when it's taking place, where they can find it, and how they can register? Yes. Thank you, Brian. And the Yoga Expo is a one-day-long event happening April 14th at the Fort Lauderdale Convention Center. And you can register and purchase tickets at www.theyogaexpo.co. And, and Ari, you are also a business coach. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how people can find you if they're looking for that sort of help? Yeah. So I, I started an academy, an online academy called Busy Yogi. And I run uh, group programs as well as one-on-one training um, different times a year. The next one's coming up at the end of January. And it's for um, holistic, mindful individuals who have ideas about how to be an entrepreneur, how to help the world in a bigger way, and just don't really know how to do it. So I'm super excited. And you can check it out at busyyogi.com, B-I-Z-Z-Y, yogi.com. And if anyone out there is interested in learning about martial arts, self-defense, or meditation, I teach classes and have an apprenticeship program. And if you're interested in working with me in Miami, Florida, you can look me up at Dharma at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-Y-D-H-A-R-M-A at gmail.com. Well, thank you very much. Yes, Ariane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and letting us pick your brain and having such great conversations with us. It was an excellent experience having you on, and I'm very looking forward to having more conversations with you and having you convince me uh, how to run my business better. (laughs) If you ever wanted to have a conversation, you are always welcome to connect with me. But, um, you know, I feel like there is a place. There is a place for... For hopeless cases. yeah, Yeah, there's a place for just being fucking awesome and being able to make money. Well, if you like what you hear on our podcast and you'd like to support us for as little as a dollar a month, you can find us on our Patreon page, which is located at www.patreon.com slash mindfulness of doom. Yes, every little bit helps. And uh, if you'd like to give us more than a dollar a month, you're more than welcome to. If you found this podcast to be helpful to you or life changing, or or if it's just entertaining and you would like to throw us a couple bucks as a thank you for the service that we put out there of entertaining you, feel free. We would love to say very nice things about you on the podcast. Well, now it's time to thank our sponsors. We don't have any real sponsors on the show, but if you would like to become one, you can reach out to us at mindfulnessofdoom at gmail.com. In the meantime, we have some real fake sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by money. It's evil or it's not. Depends on which of us you ask. This episode is also brought to you by gym yoga. When you want to look spiritual and get toned at the same time. And this episode is brought to you by Bali, the spiritual retreat place everybody wants to go to. This episode of Mindfulness of Doom is also brought to you by The Lottery. The Lottery, supporting unhealthy dreams and expectations. And lastly, this episode is brought to you by Misguided Beliefs About Modesty. That's right, there's no virtue in being broke. We invite you to like, subscribe, and rate our podcast on iTunes and wherever podcasts of real quality can be found. Have suggestions, music, or artwork for the show? Want to sponsor our podcast? Find our contact page and links to the items we talked about in this episode at www.mindfulnessofdoom.com. 
This podcast is recorded at the Center for Social Change in Miami, Florida. It is written, edited, and recorded by Brian Lemmerman and Corey Hardacre. Our music is by Pallet Town and can be found at soundcloud.com slash Town. All poorly thought out opinions are ours. Nothing you hear in this podcast should be construed as professional medical advice. Go see a therapist, all of you. Let me re- rewind your <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> I've never heard you do that before. <laughs> <laughs>